Hello, my bubblas. Welcome to The Lee Show. Thank you to our new paid subscribers. Thank you to Craig Sienna. If you have not yet signed up to be a paid subscriber, go to leebrustler.substack.com or click on the link in the show notes for this podcast. Thank you, of course, for signing up. Thank you for your support. Uh, we have a few topics to talk about today. It's a bit more serious than some of the other episodes we've done. Uh, no, no dumb stories today, if that's what you were tuning in for. Um, first, I want to talk about uh, a seminar I'm taking right now. Um, it's taught by Arnold Kling. He is one of my favorite authors and economists. He publishes a substack called In My Tribe. He publishes a blog called Ask Blog. That stands for Arnold S. Kling. Uh, I enjoy his writing immensely. And he has created a weekly seminar for paid subscribers of his Substack. I think it was a great idea. The topic of the seminar is institutional irrationality. It's eight weeks long, and we had the first session earlier this week. The topic this week, or, or the focus this week, was on the state of key institutions, including mainstream media, political parties, universities, and there were a few books that were assigned as reading for this week's class, including A Time to Build by uh, Yuval Levin. And uh, Levin was the guest lecturer at the, uh, at the seminar, and he discussed his book. I thought there were a few very interesting topics that we talked about. So one of them was the impact of technology on public discourse. And the tone of that discussion sounded very pessimistic to me. I, I perceived that Levin was very focused on comparing an observation of about America now with like a memory of what America was at one point. You know, this sort of, hey, remember the good old days when everyone was smart and polite to their neighbors and the discourse was more polite. And I I get that, but it it feels like a sort of fake nostalgia. And and sure, like I, I get it. If you focus on the, you know, QAnon adult brains that are getting their news from Facebook and, and fretting about Hillary Clinton boiling toddlers, it's easy to become depressed because you you would conclude like everyone's so stupid. Wow, why do they believe this? But there's a bunch of reasons why people believe that stuff. Uh one of them is they don't trust their leaders and the media to provide them with truth. They don't trust those institutions. Those institutions are broken. It's not that technology has broken them. It's that the people in those institutions have broken them. They have broken the trust. And, and of course, the second reason, and this is an interesting one that Scott Alexander pointed out recently, is that it's hard to become a, a sort of expert in some sort of legitimate thing, right? It's hard to become an expert in nuclear physics. But if you pick something for which there is no credentialed expertise, right? If you're picking something like the lizard people and the Illuminati, you can become your own expert in like two hours. And so you, you take yourself out of the established system and hierarchy of power and you create a new hierarchy of power and of, of genius. 
So I get it why people are doing that, but I think there's also this fake glamorization of like the Walter Cronkite era where there would be some white guy in a suit providing the news to millions of Americans. And then you see the New York Times now or Fox News now that are are just screeching publications that, you know, you'd say, oh, they're ruining the electorate. I don't blame technology for this. You know, I, I, I think that there's this conventional telling of the, the, the narrative that 60 years ago, there were a limited number of sources in the media and they were all targeting the same very broad audience, whether it was CBS or NBC or ABC, your choices were limited and they didn't want to alienate anyone with extreme views. So they took a very centrist narrative But as the media has become more fragmented, you have sources that are catering to a more finely tuned audience with more niche points of view. And so agitating and inflaming your readers is now the point. That's the whole point. That's not an unfortunate side effect. But also, can't we celebrate the technology for allowing a much broader variety of voices to reach you. It gives me a platform. It, it, it creates a free market of ideas as you have this creator class that can now produce content that I can choose to read, right? I can read Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and Tyler Cowen and Freddie DeBoer and Mike Solana and many others without needing an intermediary or a corporate news provider They can publish on their own and win an audience and make a living through the strength of their ideas. I think the broader disintermediation of corporate media is the most exciting part of what is happening now. I don't lament this. I am am excited by it. And I predict that it will accelerate dramatically as Web3 becomes more prevalent. Antonio Garcia Martinez, who I admire greatly, wrote a a very excellent tweet. He said, much of the enthusiasm for crypto stems not from it being a technically superior solution for many functions of society, but rather that it forces a reboot from the corrupt institutions that are currently in charge. Look, I believe that we are in an age in which scientific and technological progress are not just likely, they are inevitable. And I am excited about the impact of technology on news, on discourse, on the media. And the legacy media wants to fight this. It is a major threat to their power and influence. If Glenn Greenwald can build an audience without a corporate media job, why do we need the corporate media at all? And these legacy firms see social media as a major threat. That's why they've tried so hard to take them down. How else could we interpret these Wall Street Journal hit pieces on Facebook and and this fake whistleblower that they trot out, Francis Hogan, pretending that they're breaking some, some incredible story? They do it to reclaim the power that they have lost. I think my... My favorite moment of the seminar this week and my greatest insight from the seminar actually came from an offhand remark that Arnold made about a billing administrator at a medical practice. And he made the point that 20 years ago, 
if you worked as a billing clerk, there was a huge variation in the technology that you used for billing. Some of it was maybe by hand or with paper records. Sometimes you had some homegrown or regional technology. There wasn't this kind of standard of a, a system or a, or a process, but now there is. And so my insight into this is that this standardization has changed the value of a good billing administrator. When you have that high level of variance that we had 20 or 30 years ago, a good one could add a lot of value. They could make a big difference. But now the value of the individual is kind of diminished, right? There's no such thing as an elite billing administrator anymore. And I, I think this is largely positive because it reduces errors and it should lead to less value destruction and screw ups and mistakes. Like if you, I have this theory that I can't quite describe well, but it's basically that as there's more, as there's, as there's error reduction, there's fewer things to short. There's fewer mistakes. There's fewer screw ups, but also this makes it harder to be elite at anything, right? There's no longer this elite medical billing administrator. And so to differentiate in a meaningful way, to be a hero, to be an, an ubermensch of sorts, that's only going to come through really differentiated innovation, through ideas, through value creation. That's the only place it's going to come from. And that's much harder to do. It's also going to drive increased inequality. Because you're going to have a, a mass of people that have a, a high degree of equality. And then those, those supermen that are creating huge value, the, the, the Elon Musks of the world. And it's going to drive increasing returns to education, to critical thinking. That's how you're going to set yourself apart. Now, if we think about the concept of an institution, one, one aspect of this I don't know if it's positive or negative, is that it no longer ties the business as an institution to the specific individual, right? So it, the business doesn't necessarily need Susie, the billing administrator. It just needs a billing administrator. It makes people more interchangeable. And that probably is reducing job security for many people. That's bad. But it might also enable some greater economic and geographic mobility, maybe, if people feel less tied to particular jobs and institutions. You know, you, Yuval and, and Arnold on the, during the seminar made the point that this echoes in the fear that automation would lead to job loss, which, I, I, by the way, I don't put a lot of stock in that theory. I think it's the opposite. But there, there is a similarity to this concept. So overall, I thought the discussion during the seminar was excellent. I really enjoyed it. I'm very much looking forward to next week's discussion of trends affecting institutions. And uh, I'll keep you updated as I go through the class and, and share what I'm learning. It seems that the alphabet soup of regulators has approved the COVID vaccine for children ages 5 to 11. And I am incredibly bothered by this. Uh, you know, the last 18 months, is that how long it's been? 18 months, probably a little more than that, have highlighted how 
utterly incompetent and broken these agencies are, the CDC, the FDA, these people are all stupid. Their approval means nothing. I have like zero trust in these bodies. That is an institutional failure. And it's been a failure since the beginning of COVID. All of these so-called experts, the epidemiologists and virologists and all the other ologists, they've shown that not only can they not do their jobs well, they can't create public policy. They're not useful. There's a reason we elect politicians and not epidemiologists to make policy. These people have been highly destructive. And and there's this fetishization of them, calling them experts. I think this term expert is an insult. I think that's what it's turned into. When something is attributed to experts, I immediately tune out. Because... I think there is this false premise that in order to have a valid opinion on COVID policy, you have to have like a PhD in virology, right? Like people say, we should consult with medical professionals about this. The doctors don't know shit about shit. They, they don't know anything. So it's just not useful. Science and policy are different things. Expertise in one does not equate to expertise in the other. Now, this vaccine for kids, look, COVID-19 does not have a meaningful impact on children. We know that. The number of children who have gotten very sick or died is minuscule. It's way lower than the number of kids who die from much more common causes, right? If we were truly worried about protecting kids, we'd make the speed limit 25 miles an hour throughout the entire country. So it's just nuts that we're using this as an excuse. And by the way, all the kids who have died so far of this, or almost all of them, they had something else wrong, right? It was like, kid dies of cancer, but also has COVID, and somehow that's chalked up to a death from COVID. I worry what this vaccine is going to do to my kids. I worry more for my daughter than for my son. I I can't quite describe why, but I do. But if I had a choice, I surely would not get them this vaccine. But I know that their school and every other school that they could switch to is likely to mandate it. So I won't have a choice. And I think what bothers me the most is that this just highlights another policy failure. Because a sensible person looking at this would go, oh, yeah, this doesn't matter for kids. Don't don't fuck around with this shot. They don't need it. This just demonstrates the incompetence of the agency, that they're not thinking clearly and rationally and critically. That no one is just being sensible and taking a step back and going, does this even make sense? Why do we need to vaccinate children against something that doesn't even harm them? Now, look, to be clear, I am a big believer in mRNA technology. I think it is one of the great innovations of the 21st century. I think it will have a positive and long-lasting effect on humanity. I enthusiastically got the Moderna vaccine as early as I possibly could. I thought it was really cool. But I'm an adult man. Maybe I have a little more susceptibility to COVID than a child does. I don't know. But also, if I grow another head or three arms, it doesn't matter. That'd be fun. I've been saying for more than a year that it was clear that the Moderna vaccine was the best one, followed by Pfizer, and that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was trash. I've been saying for, for a long time that the best policy would be mixing and matching the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, right? Get one shot of one and a booster of the other. And I think that perspective is becoming 
more common despite some pushback from regulators, from, from the idiots, but it's becoming more, more mainstream of a view. In fact, it's this COVID policy that was one of the motivators for me to create this podcast. And, and my blog is that it just seemed clear that I was thinking about things more clearly and better and differently than the, the, the general masses. So how did I, how do I get my views out there? And this is how I'm doing it. Hope you enjoy. There were some notable elections yesterday, including for the mayor of New York City. Eric Adams won the election, surprising no one. And, and I'm optimistic about Adams. I hope that he will write the ship. I mean, mostly I'm grateful that we will rid ourselves of this louse, Bill de Blasio. He is the worst mayor that we have ever had. He is a buffoon. He is corrupt. And he has done everything that he can to reduce the quality of life in New York City. There was a, a piece in the New York Post yesterday by Kyle Smith that said it, said it really well. Goodbye, Billy Bolshevik. And he wrote a great article about it. I strongly encourage you to, uh, to read the whole thing. I wrote last month and I, and I talked about last month what makes for a good mayor of New York. And my, my theory is New York City has so many powerful people, powerful groups. They're, they're rich, they're successful, they're used to getting their own way all the time. And mayors like Lindsay and Dinkins, their disposition was to say yes to everything, to everyone. That was their starting point, to please everyone. And in a city with all these powerful groups... You can't say yes to everyone, right? There's a limited pool of resources. And part of being a political leader is taking that limited pool and deciding what to prioritize and what to apportion it to. And they didn't do a good job of it. And when Giuliani took over as mayor in 1993, he relished being a jerk. He relished saying no to everyone. And that's part of what made him successful. He was willing to take on all of the powerful interest groups, the unions, the city employees, the schools, everyone. And he seemed to enjoy fighting with them. Now, we'll see whether Adams has that same backbone, whether he has the strength to stand up to everyone. I think he's saying a lot of the right things. I'm pleased that we are moving on to a new era. Like, I, I just, I think that we have seen repeatedly that these progressive politicians are not responsible enough to lead our major cities. Now, that wasn't de Blasio's only issue. He was incompetent. He was a crook. But whether it's New York, San Francisco, or Los Angeles, the progressives are just not up to the task. Tyler Cowen wrote an incredibly thoughtful piece in March of 2020 about how COVID would mean the demise of the progressive left. And I think we've seen that proven out. We saw it in the presidential election in which a centrist and Joe Biden was nominated and won. We've seen it in the way that progressive politicians have lost repeatedly. Abolishing the police and critical race theory and masks for toddlers are not popular policies. They don't win elections. They allow the Democrats to be branded as dangerous cranks. I, like, I just don't get why for this, 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 this squad, this group, it's so compelling to be anti-Israel. What, what's the premise there? How does, that, how does that work? I mean, Israel is the most free and prosperous country in a region of dictatorships and poverty. 
It's a country in which elections are held regularly with multiple parties, probably too regularly. It's a country in which people of all races and nationalities can live and work and prosper. Like, can we just stop with the moronic politicians in America who think that it is somehow fashionable to declare Israel's an apartheid state or whatever nonsense they claim? Can we stop with it being trendy for these idiotic tankies on college campuses who think that that it's these are somehow coherent or intelligent viewpoints? It's not. And the elections yesterday have demonstrated that voters do not want these progressive politicians and these policies. These dangerous socialists are not going to win elections. Let's hope that this experiment is finished. Let's hope that this anti-Semitic fringe in Congress that commands a lot of attention on social media, let's hope that we can be rid of them. They're not effective leaders. You know, during the seminar this week, Levin made the point that many of these politicians look at being elected as a way to build their brand rather than as an opportunity to legislate and to improve the country. And in the gubernatorial elections in Virginia and in New Jersey yesterday, the voice of voters was clear. I think I am considering launching my campaign for office. I don't know which office, but I'm going to form a new party and it's going to be focused on my signature issue. It's called, ready for this? The sirens are too damn loud. And my primary goal in office will be to reduce the volume of sirens. What do you think of that? These sirens do not do anything. No one pays attention to them. I don't even understand why they chose this volume, right? Like someone must have sat down and said, the sirens should be 120 decibels on the fire trucks. Why? Why is 120 better than 110 or 100? Why why didn't they pick 130? Like how did they pick that number? Because it feels arbitrary and it's stupid. You know, the New York Times cited a bunch of, of research studies and concluded that, quote, the use of lights and sirens has been shown to have little bearing on patient outcomes. It goes on, sirens can be useful in certain situations, such as getting through red lights or stop signs, but they can be harmful to responders who can suffer premature hearing loss and to patients who can be stressed by the noise. And then there's the risk of accidents. A study of ambulance crashes by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration estimated that an average of 4,500 such accidents occurred annually from 1992 to 2011, resulting in an average of 33 deaths and injuries to 2,600 people each year. Dr. Clausen said the overuse of lights and sirens posed a public health dilemma. And this is a great quote here. Killing nuns and children at crosswalks because you are running lights and sirens on a mouse bite doesn't make any sense. I love that. Now, look, I know I sound like a, a little bit of a ranting lunatic complaining about this, but the volume is just unbearable. And it's so unnecessary. It's ineffective. No one pays attention. No one moves through these emergency vehicles. Most of the time, it's not even emergencies. They're just like going to get a donut. And these agencies have response time targets that were generated in the 70s. They're outdated. It's time to reform the sirens. So vote for me whenever I run for something on the sirens are too damn loud ticket. It's time for a quick word from our sponsor, I love podcasts. You love podcasts. Osama bin Laden loved podcasts, I think. He was a big true crime buff. And I published The Lee Show using Anchor. I think it's a great service. I tested out a number of options. This was clearly the best. They have great sound quality. It's the same company. Anchor is made by the same company that created the weapons 
that cause Havana syndrome. How cool is that? And it's owned by Spotify as part of their quest to destroy Neil Young. Anchor provides the tools that let you record and edit from your phone, from your computer. I record my audio, I upload it, and distribute it to all the major podcasting platforms. It's very easy. They'll get you on Spotify, they'll get you on Apple Podcasts, all the leading players, and you can make big bucks. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We talked a lot in the past about China, about my concerns about China. I think China is in the process of scoring an own goal. They're hurting themselves right now in a way. And what I mean by that is Xi Jinping, the leader of China, is consolidating power and he is creating a new national socialism. And yes, I am obviously fully aware of the connotation of that term. And in the process, he is weakening China. In the past, China has failed and failed spectacularly when the state has tried to intervene the most. Perry Link wrote a a great piece in the New York Review of Books last month, and he said, the tragedy of CCP policies in China can be seen as arising from excessive zeal for shortcuts. More successful East Asian transitions to the modern world, such as those in Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, have done better by going step by step. But impatient for global preeminence, the CCP has rushed ahead several times and crashed. The Great Leap Forward in the late 1950s, which followed Mao's plans for surpassing Britain and catching up with America, ended in the starvation of 30 million people. The Cultural Revolution made demands that children proclaim that they loved Chairman Mao more than their parents. And it was intended to to show that China would have this, this magical new way in the world. But it was a body blow to Chinese culture, whose consequences have lasted until today. And Deng Xiaoping, with his one-child policy, which was intended in the late 1970s to jumpstart the economy, it has led to a demographic crisis, to a, a, a problem in labor supply and elder support. Now, Xi Jinping is doing everything that he can to control education, speech, thought, the economy. He has shut down any sort of private teaching or private tutoring because he sees it as a threat to the voice of the state. He controls what can be said online, what information reaches citizens in his country. He's locking up the business people like Jack Ma when they become too rich. He's confiscating their wealth. Anything that can be viewed as a threat to his power, to his control, is being taken down a notch. He is exerting more control over the economy, over the military, and all of it is focused on consolidating and rolling up his power. The army reports to him alone. He has fought any source of power other than himself. He's eliminated his political rivals like Bo Lai. He is creating a dictatorship in plain Sight And it's even cultural. Changes in TV and movies. You're no longer allowed to show effeminate men on TV, whether as as actors or as guests on talk shows. In fact, the, the Chinese government made a proclamation that used a slur that's typically used to bully gay men as a, a way of outlawing this. 
Remember that the Politburo Standing Committee is still all male. And the country stresses the role of women as of uh, uh, wives and mothers. The Me Too movement has been completely suppressed. Michael Schumann wrote a, a good piece in Bloomberg. And what he said is that all of these rules have this anti-capitalist edge with these vague and threatening pronouncements that appear aimed at specific businesses and give off a whiff of impe- uh, and give off a whiff of impending arbitrary punishment and it's the arbitrary part that is so killer that's what sets apart a country like ours with our laws and our rules from a dictatorship where power is not won legitimately and so it must be expressed arbitrarily he goes on to, to say that the government's strong stewardship of the economy over the past 40 years is undeniable, but it's the economy only excels when the party cadres released their grip from the nation's throat. The economic miracle was not a triumph of the state, but it was the withdrawal of the state. It only started when Deng Xiaoping dismantled the communes and the prohibitions on private business in the 1980s. And that finally freed the entrepreneurial spirit of the farmers, the workers, the business people. And that's what propelled propelled growth and wealth. And now the Chinese Communist Party is in a return to the the we know best mentality. I'm not saying we're going to have another great leap forward where 30 million people die. But I don't see how they think they can outthink everyone else. I wrote about... In July, the way the U.S. has bungled our policy towards China for a long time, right? We have scored our own goal on ourselves. We have undermined our strength and played right into the hands of Beijing. And we did it to enrich a handful of private corporations that benefited from outsourcing jobs from the U.S. to China. And we gutted entire industries and towns and deindustrialized the U.S., all while proclaiming how magical the services industry was in the United States, as if somehow some guy who who lost his job at the steel mill is going to go become an FX trader. I mean, it's just inane. And and all the while, we overprescribed these opioids and we sent the message to people that you lost your job, but we don't care. You can just take some fentanyl and go fuck yourself and die. China is a grave threat to America, to our system of values, to our strength in the world. It is a totalitarian country in which the ruling Communist Party controls ideas and commerce and speech and travel. They put ethnic minorities in concentration camps, and they've been very cunning about the way they have stewarded their economy during this time, the way they have exerted themselves around the world, and we'll talk more about that next week. But the U.S. must act to counter this. That's the Cold War that we are in right now. And maybe now this is our opening. Maybe Xi Jinping is screwing up enough and this gives us a chance to make a comeback. I think President Biden has so far handled our relations with China pretty well. I worry that all these changes that Xi Jinping is enacting are going to increase dissent at home and that then he's going to feel the need to lash out elsewhere to distract from the problems he's creating at home. I don't know if that means a blockade of Taiwan or some other belligerent act, but it won't be pretty. And the United States is going to get dragged into it. 
the government under Xi Jinping must maintain strict control. They have to because they don't legitimately derive their power. That's the real strength of democracy. When the mandate of power derives from a free and a fair election, you don't have to stifle the opposing voices and the opposing beliefs. China is a dangerous country. It's a dangerous adversary. It's a dictatorship. But if they're weakening themselves as they become more dictatorial, maybe that provides a strategic opening for us. Really, I am optimistic. I believe that American democracy, regardless of its flaws, and there are many, it's so robust as as an operating system for our country that it will survive the threats posed by China, by our rivals. I think it's the beauty of this system that enables and empowers the creators of extraordinary wealth and productivity, the the ubermensches that we talked about earlier. There's a reason that all the huge companies and businesses that are growing fast, they're all coming from America. They're not coming from Europe. They're not really coming from South America. Even in in, in China, the ones that exist are just ripoffs of American companies with a, a monopolistic mandate from the government. It doesn't mean things are always going to be good here. We will still have recessions and fights and wars, but I'm optimistic that our system will prevail. Thank you for listening. If you're not already a paid subscriber, please become one. It's easy. Just click on the listener support link in the show notes for the podcast or go to leebrestler.substack.com. Thank you in advance. Remember, you can find me on Instagram, on Twitter. I truly appreciate your support. I welcome your feedback and I will be back with more soon.